We are in John chapter 18 today, and this is Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week is the highest and holiest week in the Christian year. So this is a, this is a big deal for us. So, so really Palm Sunday marks the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem to begin Holy Week. And then Thursday night, Holy Thursday, is the Last Supper. It marks the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. Good Friday, Jesus died on Good Friday. And then Easter Sunday, time to party because Jesus is alive. So Holy Week is a big deal. It is the most important week in all of human history. There's no doubt about it. Even if you have a bad week this week, it's still a great week because this is exactly what we needed. So, um, so that's what we're celebrating and that's what Easter weekend is going to be all about. But So over the last several weeks, we've been in this series called I Am. We've been in the Gospel of John. And here's what's interesting about the Gospel of John. It has 21 chapters in it and one third of the gospel focuses on Holy Week. Did you know that? One third of it does. Focuses on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's John's way of saying that Jesus' death and his resurrection are a really big deal. His teaching is a big deal. And he gives us a lot of that. But the entire third of the book is focused on this last week. And so really, really big deal. Now we've been, we've been really tracking with these I am statements of Jesus. And, you know, I've shared with you about Jesus' statement where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I shared with you, I felt like that's kind of the most audacious claim that he made. And then, and then when he says, I am the good shepherd, that's probably the most relational, the most personal claim that he made, because he's talking about how he is a a shepherd and how he relates to his sheep in a very personal and relational way. But the statement that we're going to look at today, church, is the big one. It is absolutely crucial that we understand it. It is, it is so big for us. And so this, is, this statement today that we're going to read about puts Jesus in a class completely by himself, as we're going to, as we're going to see. And it really narrows down our choices of who Jesus is. I mean, either he was a con man or he was a madman or he was the God-man. And we're going to see that um, very fresh and new today for us. There's no other option available to us. So we're in John chapter 18. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read the Word of God together today. John chapter 18. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to him, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. All right, so this is, this is the story of Jesus' arrest. And William Barclay is a Bible commentator. He's a very respected and uh, Bible commentator that uh, really uh, over the last hundred and so years. And he says that this phrase, and you'll see it in verse 3 basically, where he talks about this band of soldiers. And what he says is literally this band of soldiers would mean probably around a thousand troops. That's a lot of troops. 1,000 troops to come to arrest Jesus and 11 of the disciples. And so these, these troops are very experienced. Uh, they are very good at what they do. They're heavily armed, probably, according to William Barclay, uh, 250 of these troops were special forces. So the guys that are just elite, kind of cavalry class, if you will. And so what you have going on in this story is just classic overreach, okay? So they're, they're trying to arrest Jesus and the 11 disciples, and they've just overkilled this thing. I mean, they're not trying to capture a Taliban terrorist camp here. They're just trying to catch Jesus and the 11 disciples who, who they were with every single day in the temple courts and throughout the city streets of Jerusalem. And, you know, there was even no threat of violence, you know, at at any point in time. And so this is overkill. They've got a thousand people on the scene to pull this off. So the scene is really dark because it's, it's late at night, early in the morning. And this is outside the city of Jerusalem, right outside the city, of wall, the, the city walls. And they've got spears and lanterns and clubs and the whole nine yards. And so Jesus knows that they're coming and, and he walks up to them and says, whom do you seek? And they say, we, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth because it's hard to see. It's hard to figure out who's who. And Jesus responds back to them, I am he. And it's that statement that I want us to consider this morning. In fact, I want to share with you three details today in this story that I think have huge relevance for our lives today that are just huge in their implications for us. The first thing I want to show you is the greatest claim. We're going to see in this story the greatest claim that's ever been made. And then secondly, we're going to see the greatest problem. And then lastly, we're going to to look at the greatest exchange. So we're going to look at a claim, a problem, and an exchange. Let's look at the first one, the greatest claim. Let me show you this in verse 4. We've already kind of talked about this, but I'll read it to you again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am He, you see that statement, I am he, that's the one, that's the big one. Now, what you need to know about that is in the original language, the word he is not there. 
So what the translators did is when they're translating this, they want to, they're, they're trying to make it look, they want it to be readable and understandable. So they inserted that pronoun, I am he there. But in the original, Jesus is just saying, I am. Now, what's he doing? I would submit to you, church, that he is taking on the divine name. He is identifying himself as God in the flesh. That's what he's doing. He is making an unbelievable claim when he says, I am. So you're like, well, what does it really mean? What does I am really mean? I think it means three things. I think first and foremost, when Jesus says this statement, I am, what he's saying is this, I am absolute being and absolute reality. That's what he's saying. I am absolute in my being and in my reality. What that means is he's saying, I don't have a beginning and I don't have an end. Jesus is and he always has been. To put it in central Indiana vernacular, Jesus was here before there was a here here. You guys following me on that? That's what he's saying. So it means that he is absolute being an absolute reality. Secondly, when he says I am, he means he's basically saying this, I am utterly independent. I depend on nothing and no one for my being or my existence. Now, you and I can't say that because we are totally dependent on God for our being and our existence. Totally. We couldn't breathe the breath that we're breathing in right now were it not for the grace of God. We are totally dependent on God. But Jesus is saying, basically, I am the eternal one and my existence and my being relies on nothing and no one else. Here's the third thing that it means. It means that God is, God in the person of Jesus is the most important and the most valuable reality in all of the universe. That's what he's saying when he says, I am. I am the most important and the most valuable reality in all of the universe. He is worth, he is worthy of our interest, our enjoyment, our attention and admiration like nothing else in all of the universe. He is claiming the divine name. This is huge. This is nothing short of astounding. He is saying, I am and I always have been and I always will be. Now, you might push back and it would be fair for you to say, well, well Scott, what if he's just identifying himself? He's asking them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. What if he's just saying, here I am? What if he's just identifying that he is who, you know, that they're looking for? Well, that's fair, but let me, let me build my case. Do you remember the story in, in, the, in the book of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush? You remember that story? And, and so God, through the burning bush, reveals himself to Moses and calls Moses to go back to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. You remember that story? And so, and so Moses gets his instructions from God who's appearing in this burning bush and Moses goes, oh yeah, one more question. Who, who do I tell them has sent me? Who are you? What's your name? And you remember what God said? God said, tell him I am sent you. I am the great I am. You know what that means? Of course you do because I just shared it with you. 
And here you go, Jesus using the exact same language that we see in the book of Exodus. What's more fascinating is this. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with his enemies. His enemies are talking about Abraham, and Jesus interjects right in the middle and says, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, which would have been a cool trick in and of itself. He is saying before Abraham was, I am. I always have been and I always will be, is what he's saying there. Now that is fascinating. That's why I think what he's saying here is absolutely astounding. He is taking God's name. He's claiming the name of God for himself. Now, church, think with me for just a minute. If I stood up in front of you today and I said to you, I am I always have been and I always will be. And I depend on no one or nothing for my existence. You know what you need to do if I said that? You need to slip out of your seat and just go right out the back door and never come back here again because I am a con man or a madman, right? That's what, that's what I need to do. Here's the thing. Ordinary people don't make that claim. They just don't. Right? Human beings don't, don't share, human beings don't share God's absolute existence. We don't say, I am that I am. We don't say that. What we say is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But we don't say, I am the great I am. And so the reality is, is we are not God. We are creatures who've been created by the creator. And we are dependent on God for everything. We are only because he is. We know only because God has revealed it to us. And so we have our existence, we have our, our knowledge, we have everything that we have only because of who God is. Now, the reason why this is such a big deal, the reason why this is so huge for us and the implications are so big is because this marks the difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. This is, this is huge. Because when you think about the prophet Muhammad in the, pro, in, the, in the religion of Islam, Muhammad never claimed to be the eternal one. He just claimed to point the way to Allah. But he never claimed deity. He never claimed eternality. He, ne- he never made such a claim. And so certainly he's... Jesus is distinct from Muhammad. Jesus is also distinct from Buddha because Buddha himself was considered the enlightened one because somehow, some way, he transcended karma. But he never claimed divine status. Confucius is just a philosopher and a politician. None of these guys came close to making this kind of claim. And it puts Jesus and Christianity in a completely different category. And so when people make this make this claim that Jesus is kind of thrown in with all the other religions of the world, you know, the coexist bumper sticker, you guys see that thing all around? It just drives me crazy because like, you don't know what you're talking about. You haven't looked at what Jesus says. You haven't looked at his claims. Do you know that there's a place in the gospels where Jesus says to the scribes and the teachers of the law, I have, I keep sending you prophets throughout the centuries and you keep killing them. Do you hear what he said? 
Jesus knows exactly who he is. There's another incident in the gospel of Luke where Luke records Jesus saying, you know, to the crowd, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. How many people you know that are old enough to see that? Well, Jesus saw it. And again, these statements are all over the Gospels and you read through the Gospels and what you find is Jesus knew exactly who he was and he communicated in everything he did. And so it leaves us with one choice out of three. He was either a con man or a madman, or he was, he was the God man. And so you begin to see that Christianity is just separate and distinct from all of the other religions of the world. I love how Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Defiant Grace, he says this, he says, he says, Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all of our religious instincts on their heads. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. And moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations and doing our duties. But only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it's the one faith whose founder tells us not to bring our doing, but to bring our need. You see that? You see, the biggest difference between Christianity and the religions of the world, the religions of the world tell us you got to do X, Y, and Z. And if you do it good enough, you'll get to God. But Christianity doesn't tell us that. Christianity tells us something completely different. Christianity doesn't say that man is looking for God. Christianity says God is looking for us. And he looked for us so intently that he didn't send a prophet, he didn't send a sage, he didn't send a wise teacher. He just came himself. God took on flesh. And so really, religion is man's search for God, but Christianity is God's search for man. And so that's the claim Jesus is making right in front of them. I am, the great I am is in your presence. Well, that leads us to the greatest problem. And you see the greatest problem that we have, right? In the middle of the story, it's in verse six. Let me, let me show it to you again. This is, this is so fascinating to me. So verse six, when Jesus said to, said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, let me just kind of paint the picture of this. There are a thousand troops here on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's at night. These guys are heavily armed. These are elite battle-hardened soldiers. They don't see, they, they don't send, the Romans didn't, you know, they, you don't conquer the world by being stupid, okay? So they didn't send green troops out to the Middle Eastern theater to kind of fight these battles. These guys are uh, battle-hardened. They're experienced. Many of them are elite-level forces. And Jesus sees them that they're coming, Ask them, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am, and boom, they're on the ground. Isn't that interesting? They couldn't even stand before him. Every single one of them are on the ground at the sound of his voice. Now, here's my question. Who's arresting who here? Jesus is the one standing, and they're laying on the ground. 
And he asked him again, who are you looking for? I told you, I am. Now, the question is, why are they on the ground? I think it's a good question. And I think the answer is this. None of us can stand in the presence of God. You're going to lose your footing before the holiness of God every time. That's why they're on the ground. You see this all over scripture. In 2 Chronicles 5, they're dedicating the temple. They've, they've been building the temple. It's beautiful. It's majestic. All the people of Israel gathered around. They're so excited because the temple marks the very place where the presence of God will dwell on earth. And so they're gathered around and the the chapter tells us that the glory of God came down from heaven and it filled the most holy place. And there's this interesting detail right in 2 Chronicles 5. The priests were there watching it, but they couldn't stand. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. And then you fast forward to Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is a prophet of God. He's the most righteous man. He's the most committed man in all of Israel. He's a man of faith. He, you know, he's the most committed man. And God blesses him by help giving him a vision of the throne room of God. Like he gets to see the very throne of God. And so Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 that he is on his face and he says these words, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Literally, when he says, woe is me, in the Hebrew, it means I'm coming apart at the seams. I am unraveling at what I'm envisioning here. Fast forward to Luke chapter five. Peter's been fishing all night long in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There are thousands of people gathered on the shore. They want, they want to get close to Jesus. They're pressing in on him. So Jesus decides to get in Peter's boat and they push out from shore and Jesus begins teaching the crowd. After he's done teaching the crowd, Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey man, let's, let's, why don't we push out a little deeper out in the lake and uh, I want you to drop your, your nets. And Peter's like, Jesus, I've been fishing all night long. I didn't catch even a crawdad. I'm not going to catch anything now. But because you say so, I'll do it. So he pushes out, throws the nets in the water. And I mean, within seconds, the nets are full of fish. They're fish jumping in the boat. There's so many fish in the nets. The boat is capsizing as he's trying to bring them in. Finally, he just lets it go and he falls at Jesus' feet. And he looks at Jesus and says, leave me because I am a sinful man and I don't even deserve to be in your presence. And then John, the apostle, writes the book of Revelation, chapter one. He sees Jesus enthroned on his throne in heaven. And John says, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Now church, what is that? It's the holiness of God. It's the holiness. It's God is perfect goodness. He is so good. He's pure goodness that when we come into his presence, we see his goodness and we see our ungoodness. 
When we come into his presence, we see his righteousness and we are confronted with our unrighteousness. We're confronted with the fact that God is holy and pure in all that he does and we are unholy and impure. And I think so many times in the American church, you know, we've, 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 and I'm just as guilty of this as any pastor, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but we talk so much about the love of God, don't we? And what we fail to help, help you understand is God is not only a God of love, but he is, he is also a consuming fire. Like he's holy in all that he does. And none of us are going to stand in his presence. None of us are. Because you lose your footing always in front of the holiness of God. You know, G.K. Chesterton was a prolific author in England in the early 1900s. And there was this, the prevailing philosophy of the day was the world was getting better. Like all the intellectual elites were kind of coming together saying, you know what, I I think we could get some unity in the world going because we have just made so many strides and, you know, equality and freedom and justice and things are just going so well. And then a few years later, World War I happened and everybody's not so optimistic and then World War II and all of that. But Chesterton wrote a book called What's Wrong with the World? And you know what his conclusion was? He works through all, through all the book and tells you at the end, you know, what the, you know what's wrong with the world? You know what he said? Me. I'm what's wrong, wrong with the world. The world doesn't get sorted out until someone sorts me out. Until someone sorts you out. You see, that's the truth is we're sinners and we're broken. And it's a part of who we are right now. And the truth is this, we feel it every single day, don't we? We, we, we feel this um, sinfulness and brokenness every day in our earthly relationships. And we feel it in one way by how we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And we all do it. And we do it all the time. And we have this self-image and our self-image is kind of our view of ourselves based on our perception of how well we're performing compared to other people's performance. And so when you're around somebody who's just crushing it, what happens to your self-image? It goes down, doesn't it? You know, I love to, I love to work out. Uh, I work out pretty regularly. It's kind of a hobby of mine. And, um, and so in the workouts that we do, a lot of times we're in a class and, and uh, we partner up and do a partner workout. And there are these young guys at the gym where I go and and uh, there's one guy in particular, he's in his mid-20s and just, just a great guy. He's like 6'3", 205. He's just shredded, just ripped. You know what I mean? Just strong. And, um, and I, honestly, I never want to be his partner in the partner workout. <laughs> um, never do. You know why? Because he crushes it and he reminds me that I don't. And I'm just like, eh, I'm going another direction. And maybe for someone, maybe there's someone in your life that's prettier than you are or they're smarter than you are or they're more talented than you are or whatever it is and you realize you don't live up to their standard and your self-image just tanks and you're just crushed. And the thing is, if that's true just in everyday human relationships, how much more true will it be 
when we stand before God on the day of judgment. You know, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. My job as your pastor is to get you ready for that day. And I'm just going to tell you, church, you're not going to be able to stand in your own goodness and your own righteousness alone. It will not be sufficient on that day. You better not be trusting in it because it comes up short. Let me kind of illustrate this. I, I, I can't really speak for you, but I can speak for me. If there was a little invisible person following me around from birth all the way to my death and they followed me everywhere I went and they had a little notebook and a pen and they wrote down every single time I told someone else how to live and what to do and they just chronicled that every single time I told somebody else what to do and how to live and then it was time for my day of judgment to come and then you know, this person says, you know, Scott, we're going to take it easy on you. We're not going to judge you by God's standards. We're not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. We're not going to judge you by Jesus' standards. We're just going to judge you by your standards. And you know what the truth is? Even with those, I couldn't stand. I don't even live up to my own standards, much less God's standards. And so, and so I think if that's true for me, there's a pretty good chance it might be true for you as well. So why are we trusting in that? See, if these soldiers, these 1,000 elite soldiers could not stand in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, with his glory veiled, what's it going to be like when his glory is completely unveiled and we're all there to see? This is the greatest problem of the human race is we are insufficient in and of ourselves because we are broken and sinful but then that brings us to something amazing. The gospel right in the middle of the story, the greatest exchange. Look with me at verse 7. Look what John records. So he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, uh, I, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. You see that? He's saying, let my disciples go. Take me instead. Me for them. Now, it was standard operating procedure when you're putting down an, a quote-unquote insurrection that you didn't take just the leader, you took all of the followers you could, you could gather up. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, um, me for them. You can have me, but you can't have them. Now, what's he doing? This is the greatest exchange. This is substitution. See, what Jesus is really doing is he's saying, I'm going to take their place. I'll pay their penalty. You can, you can pour it on me. And I will take their punishment for them. I will take their guilt for them. See, the reality of the gospel is this, and this is, this is what we have to confront, church, is we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we've sinned. And we've created our own insurrection against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that leaves a debt that we can't pay on our own. And so Jesus takes our place. Me for them. It was July 31st, 1941. 
and sirens rang out of cell block 14 in the Auschwitz concentration camp. A prisoner had escaped, sirens are blaring, the Gestapo running around like crazy. And because one prisoner had escaped, it was the policy of the Nazis in the concentration camps to select 10 men who would die just to discourage any further thoughts that someone might have of escaping. And so they would take 10 men and place them in the starvation bunker until they died. The ninth man selected was, an, was a man by the name of Francis Galznicek. As soon as he was selected, he fell on his knees and he started crying out, but my wife and my kids, they're going to need me. They're going to need me. They're going to miss me. So he's crying out like this over and over again. And within seconds, the small guy with these wire frame glasses steps forward and he says to the Gestapo commander, he says, take me instead of him. Take me in his place. He said, I'm a Catholic priest. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Take me instead. And to the shock and amazement of everybody in that bunker that day, they took Max Kolbe in the place of Francis Gauznicek. They took Max Kolbe back into the starvation bunker with the nine other prisoners for them to starve to death. And people said it was like a church service in there all the time. Because Max Kolbe led them in worship, led them in singing hymns and reciting scripture and just encouraging and praying for people. And it was just a different place because of his bringing God into that place. Well, miraculously, Kolbe didn't die. And so the, the Nazis took matters in their own hands and uh, they gave him a lethal injection. And finally, on August 14, 1941, he died. And so 1982, 150,000 people are gathered at St. Peter's Square in Rome. And the Pope is speaking to the masses and he takes the story of Max Kolbe and he puts his death in perspective for all the people that are listening. And the Pope described Kolbe's death this way. He said, it was a victory like the one by our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Max Kolbe died for someone else. And that someone else was Francis Gauznicek. What's interesting is Francis Gauznicek lived to be age 93. And everywhere he went, he told the story of how Max Kolbe died in his place for him. Everywhere he went, he told the gospel of that story. Church, that is exactly what Jesus did for you. That's exactly what he did for me. Jesus died in our place. He died instead of us. He took our penalty for us. That's why Peter records in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed now why would God do that well he would do it because you are precious to him because he loves you right that side of God that is just perfect love he loves you he did it for you but he took he took the judgment because judgment had to be taken. Justice had to be done. And so your judge allowed judgment to come down on his head. 
because he didn't want to lose you. He paid the price for you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel of God's grace. It's, church, it's not buy one, get one free. It's buy none and get the whole thing free. And that is the grace of God. Now, here's the real question. What if you really believed it? Like really believed it? What if you went all in on it? You sold out and said, God, if you would do that for me, I'm all in for you. What if you really did that? I think two things would happen. Not only would you stand on the day of judgment, because you would be standing in the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus, but you would stand today. You would really stand today, regardless of what you're going through right now, regardless of what difficulty, what adversity you're, you may be experiencing right now, you would be able to stand in the grace of God. For example, you may be battling some physical illness right now, some series of physical problems that they're trying to figure out and they don't really know what's going on. You would be able to stand because you know this is not your final body. You know that one day God's going to give you a glorified heavenly body. You would stand because of that. Have you been wronged by someone? Have you been hurt deeply? Have you been betrayed by someone? See, you would know because of the day of judgment that God one day is going to wipe away every tear and he's going to right every single wrong. You know that? And so what that means is it means you're free from bitterness. You're free from resentment. You're free, you're free from holding a grudge and trying to get back at them. Why? Because you know the judge will bring justice. And it's incredibly freeing. And you don't have to live in bitterness and cynicism and resentment anymore. How about this one? Have you failed God? You ever failed God? You know, I, I, that's why I love Peter, honestly, because Peter is an example of failing God all the time, failing Jesus all the time. I mean, this guy, Peter, he's got the best D group leader you could ever make. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you ever thought of that? Jesus is his D group leader and he's the right hand guy. I mean, PhD level and ministry training and relationship with God. I mean, he's got it. But when I read the gospels, I just see Peter blowing it over and over and over again. Do you ever feel like Peter? Where you just feel like you just let God down over and over. And it's the same sin over and over again. You guys track it with me? And you're like, God, there's no way God can love me because I do this over and over and over and over again. And then even in our story, Peter does it. What does Peter do? They come to arrest Jesus. He pulls out the sword. He swings it, cuts off the ear of the, the, the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Jesus, Jesus is probably thinking, uh, you know what? I've changed my mind. Go ahead and just take him. You know what I mean? Uh, that's probably what he's thinking. But he doesn't do that, does he? What's amazing, we don't read about it in John, but Luke, the physician, tells us that Jesus picked his ear up off the ground and put it back on his head and healed him. Isn't that amazing? 
And then they carried him off and started abusing him. I think what that tells us is this, is that our failures really don't stop God from loving us or forgiving us. Do you know that? Do you know that God's love for you is not based on how well you're performing today? Because you may have walked in the room and you're like, I'm not doing really well. God's love for you hasn't changed. It doesn't go up and down and all around. He just loves perfectly. He loves you perfectly. And so our failures will never stop Jesus from loving us and forgiving us. Isn't that amazing good news today? Do you know that? Do you know the grace of God in that way? Now listen, the thing I would say is, look, if you've got, if there's a sin that has pinned you down, if there's an addiction or some, some kind of life dominating sin, you need to get help for that because sin destroys us and it destroys our relationships with other people. But make no mistake about it, church, his love for you never changes. And you can take that, you can take that to the bank. And I think that's what we see here. You know, Jesus is so patient with Peter. And Peter finally gets it. He finally gets traction. You got to read about that in the book of Acts. But his grace is available for you to get traction and for me to get traction as well. Let's pray together. God, we are amazed by your grace. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have failed you in so many ways in thought, word, and deed. And so the prayer of our hearts today is that you would create within us a clean heart and you would renew a right spirit within us. We thank you that you are the great I am. You were here before there was a here here. Thank you that you exist outside of space and time. But in love and in humility, you entered into space and time for us. And so God, I just ask that every single person in this room would just be renewed in your grace and your mercy today, that we would be renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts and who, who challenges us and who cleanses us. So God, would you, just, would you just revive us today, God? Thank you that as we draw close to you, you promised you would draw close to us. Lord, we're amazed at that. So we just give you praise and we give you glory. And I just wanna give you an invitation just to take a moment. And if there's something you need to confess to God, just to do that to him, right? He's right here with you. He hears the prayers of your heart. Whatever you need to confess, whatever you need to repent, just do that just silently between you and God right now.
if you just want to claim the promise, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the word of truth to you today. God doesn't lie. He always keeps his promise. And that's your promise to claim. So God, thank you. We praise you. We love you. We want to go all in today. Help us. Give us faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.